Good afternoon. It is just nine minutes after four. Uh, welcome to Radio Veritas, to the programme Changing Gear. Thursday afternoon, Archbishop William Slattery with you. Lovely to have your company and to invite you uh, to stay with me today on this rather special day in the year, the 2nd of November. For over a thousand years and well beyond that, we have celebrated and prayed for all the souls of the faithful departed on this day. Yesterday, we had All Saints Day. We praise God for his presence in the lives of so many people, all those who responded positively and allowed the grace of God to pour into the world through them, through their holiness and through their goodness. We praise them and ask them to continue to be one family with us in Christ and to pray for us. So today at, uh, in this program, I will speak a little bit about All Souls Day, today's, today's feast. People often ask questions about is there such a place as purgatory? Does the name appear in the Bible? It doesn't. And uh, how does the Catholic Church then uh, speak about purgatory? We must also look at are we losing our Catholic identity? You know, when we were young people, and that's a long time ago for some of us, uh, we grew up in a time when there were so many external visible, concrete uh, sides of being a Catholic. You know, there was the Angelus bell was ringing. There was the Stations of the Cross to be done in Lent. There was the Rosary to be done, prayed uh, right through the year, and family Rosary, and pictures in the home. And also, uh, for example, uh, fish on a Friday. All these things, you know, were so part and made us conscious of our identity. Obviously, they're not the essential aspect of our faith. But but they certainly played a role in keeping us in contact with our family, the church, in contact with our God, because they all, in some way or other, uh, pointed to our desire to respond to God's call. So let's speak a little bit about that today also. Uh, Pope Francis has declared November the 19th a special day, the Day of the Poor. Uh, he often emphasizes this. And just to remind ourselves, because the statistics have come out in the last two weeks and showing the state of uh, the standard of living uh, in South Africa and how many poor people there are among us and how many unemployed people, is there something we can do, A, to be a conscious of it, B, to reach out, as so many of you so generously do. Uh, so uh, we'll speak about these and other items during the program today. Now, just a few points. Last Saturday, I went down to uh, Newcastle, Blaubosch, Mountain, and all those Osiswani uh, in order to be with the uh, communities down there who were celebrating 50 years of the sisters, the Franciscan Minaret sisters, uh, who were uh, 50 years working here, caring for the poor in that part of Natal. And it was a great joy. Some of them had come back from overseas. Others were celebrating their Silver Jubilee, three of them from around Lady, from around Ladysmith and Newcastle. And as well as that, they were uh, uh, some taking even final vows and first vows. It's good to see that, to see young women giving their lives to serve the Lord and his church. So that was a beautiful celebration on Saturday. And we congratulate and thank the Franciscan Minaret for the hospitality 
the simple care, the closeness to the people, their prayer life. Again, uh, just to remind you, we're coming up now to December next month and we're away to Durban for the Mini World Youth. So parishes, I know some parish told me last Sunday that they have set aside 10,000 rand to help their youth to get there. And there is enrolment taking place now all over the country. It's getting late. So dear people, let's help our youth uh, to celebrate their faith. Also, assuring all our young people that we are praying for them. We're asking God, please bless our young people who are writing exams. This is a stressful time for them. We pray that they may be cool and think uh, calmly, uh, read the questions properly, take all the time that's given to them, and be in no rush. Uh, attempt every question. You can get marks for, uh, pick up marks here and there. So we pray and ask God to guide our young people in the exams and to guide them after the exams that they may not be depressed if they don't do so well and if they do very successfully that they will think of other people and also perhaps think about uh, the, the decisions they must make for their future life. Um, uh, this week uh, or last week I was speaking to uh, the religious authorities in our prisons and they pointed out that uh, they gave me a list here and I have a list for all over the country and it finds that we have 7,786 Catholic prisoners, Batswarua, in our prisons throughout all South Africa. 7,786 and I encourage our parishes and our dioceses uh, to have people who do visit our brothers who are in great need. It's true they may have failed society. It's true that things have gone wrong in their lives. But it is also true that many of them are very depressed, locked up 40 or 60 or 100 in a room with one or two toilets and locked up already now. It is already after four o'clock. They'll be locked up there uh, uh, with bunks one over the other until uh, tomorrow morning at whatever time they are allowed out of these cages. So it's no joke in there. Let us see what we can do for our for our prisoners. Uh, again, um, uh, to remind you, on Friday we say the prayer for South Africa. We're praying for our country. Uh, it's a particular time, a time of transition. It's a time of great poverty, as I'll see later in the program. It's a time in which our crime statistics are looking very poor. Uh, Our financial rating and our growth rate uh, is less than 1%. And therefore, uh, we are not able to absorb all our workers, 35% unemployment. Uh, And so really and truly, we need to continue to pray for South Africa, a country which we love. Also, I would just say last uh, uh, Sunday, I was at St. Raphael Mamalodi, wonderful choir, wonderful celebration uh, uh, in the church. It's always a great joy to go out there, to be with the people and to rejoice and be filled with the Holy Spirit as we sing and praise God. The previous or the same day, we had confirmation as well in Montana. And again, a beautiful celebration read by Father, led by Father Robert in Peeway. Um, again, now, this coming weekend, uh, on Saturday, uh, I will go to uh, out there to Moinoy, is it, out in Rusterberg Diocese, for the funeral of Father Pius, the superior of the SMA uh, fathers, uh, who worked very close to us in not only Johannesburg, but Pretoria, 
and in uh, Rustenburg, and who passed away a, f- a few weeks ago. Uh, his family have now come down from Nigeria for his funeral this Saturday, starting at nine. And then in the afternoon, late in the evening, we have confirmation at Linwood, that magnificent parish uh, in Pretoria. Uh, on Sunday, uh, I'm out at uh, Hammerscrawl, out at St. Camillus, Father Baloy, and uh, celebrating Mass, meeting the people, and celebrating with the old boys of St. Paul's in Hammond's uh, Crawl. I just want to say I had a delightful day on the 31st of October, the last day of the month of the Rosary, when the Legion of Mary and the parish, Father Wilfred, at uh, Sunnyside invited me uh, for the procession, for the candlelight procession, for a beautiful Mass, and also for the carrying of the intentions uh, to Our Lady and sending them up by burning all these intentions and praying for all the needs of our people. What a beautiful celebration. So uh, let us begin then uh, as we now listen to our first hymn, which is very, very fitting for today, For All the Saints. Uh, Welcome back. It's 23 minutes past four in the afternoon. Uh, It's on the 2nd of November. We've begun that month in which we... uh, Coming to the end of the year, I suppose, our minds naturally turn to the end things and um, the journey of life upon which we travel. And we think of, yes, the final things. We think of death, for example. Yesterday, we celebrated with great joy the wonderful victory of our brothers and sisters who are with God, and there are millions of them. And also today, then, we remember the holy souls, those who have died and are uh, being purified in order to see the face of God. But whenever we think about death, uh, there's a certain sadness or a somber feeling in our hearts. And yet, in a way, the great saints often look forward to their death. Um, because it was uh, reaching that person whom they had sought all their lives. It was coming home, as it were. Um, I like particularly uh, in the second letter to Timothy, chapter 4, to Timothy, chapter 4 in the Bible there, Paul's letter to Timothy, second one, chapter 4, verse 6, he says, Paul says he's now in prison or towards the very end of his life when he's writing this letter. He says, the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That's St. Paul, Second Timothy, chapter 4, verse 6. The time has come for my departure. I want to underline that word. That's the word he uses about what lies ahead of him. Fairly soon, his death, his departure. He uses the word departure. He wrote in Greek, and the word in Greek he used for departure is the word analusis. I-N-I-L-U-S-I-S. Analusis. And it is a word, you know, that has uh, implications, has significance when we think about death. It's a word used when, you know, let's say you have been plowing in the field all day with the horse or with the oxen. And in the evening, you want to loose the animals. They're tired. You're letting them out to rest. That's the word used. Analusis is to loose the animals from the shafts of the plow at the end of the day to allow them to rest. So for Paul... 
His departure using the word analusis seems to signify to him he's going to rest after a hard life, walking the roads of the Roman Empire, being driven from town to town, being in shipwrecks, being in danger of death countless times. Now he's got an old man, he's in jail in Rome, and he's looking forward to his departure, that is, to his time of rest. It's also an elusis, the word used uh, for uh, unloosing the bonds of fetters. Let's say handcuffs. Let's say a man is handcuffed for a long time in prison or out of cruelty or tied up after a robbery or something. Now, to be unloosed, uh, you know, in your handcuffs or in the ropes that are tying you, uh, this is a word that uh, describes analusis, which Paul uses. And it means, for Paul, death is not only a rest, it's a liberation. It's being set free, being set free from the responsibilities, the obstacles and the difficulties of the world. The word is also used for loosening the ropes of a tent in the morning. Paul was a tent maker by profession. And when he travelled, he had a tent which he established and there he slept during the night because there were very little hostels or indeed (laughs) hotels of any kind on these wild roads of 2,000 years ago uh, over the mountains, through the valleys. And so he would sleep in his tent. And in the morning after a night's rest, he would rise for another journey. So for Paul, his departure, the word he uses for that, is like a person rising in the morning, setting out on a great journey, a road that leads to God. Again, analusis um, is used of uh, loosening the ropes that tie a ship to the key. You know, when a big ship comes in, or any ship indeed comes in, if you do not tie it, then the waters move it out and it floats off and can be destroyed. But uh, it's tied by a rope to the key, and then when the ship is about to go on a journey, go out on the great sea, then the ropes are unloosed, analusis. This is the word Paul uses for his death, his departure. So it's a launch into the deep for the harbour of eternity. So this, so for Paul then, speaking about death, he uses the word departure. And the images he has in mind are of a person at last coming to rest, of a person being free finally after a heavy responsibility or a heavy work, of a person setting out on a great journey or setting off for eternity. So uh, this is in the eyes. So death then, as we begin November, let it not be a time of sadness, but a time uh, we pray for Lord, may your kingdom come and so on. We, uh, and in the Mass, you know, we pray for the second coming of the Lord. Uh, and so we actually pray for that. It'll be from our hearts because in death we go to meet the one who died because of love for us. And, you know, from the very beginning of the church, and something they also count continued from their Jewish faith, those early Christians, uh, the belief uh, in, the, in the life with God. So now, um, 
People often say today, look, in, in our sermons in our churches, people don't seem to speak very much about heaven or about hell. And then uh, when we were small, we used to hear about purgatory. No one seems to speak about purgatory anymore. Are there souls in purgatory? What is purgatory? Where is purgatory? Is there a time in purgatory? Should we pray for the souls in purgatory? And, uh, uh, and so on. These questions, this question about purgatory. So let us look at these questions. And I'm following here Pope Benedict XVI in his book, uh, Spe Salvi, that is salvation in faith. Now, he says, uh, like, in death, when we die our life choice becomes definitive. In other words, really and truly, we're making decisions all through our lives every day. We're making a decision to go towards God or to move away from God. Or perhaps we're just dreaming along through life. So, in, But now in death, our life decisions becomes final. There is no more decisions made after we die. Um, the, uh, our, our eternal destination has now been decided by the kind of life we have lived, by the choices we have made, by whether we have wanted God or we have rejected God. So there are no more choices after death. It is in this life we must choose our eternal address, our eternal destination. Our life then in death comes before the judge. We come and Jesus tells us that. You remember Matthew chapter 25? He will, you know, divide the goats and the sheep and so on. So our life comes before God and we are what we shall be for eternity. Now, uh, the Pope goes on to say that in life there are people who have totally destroyed their desire for truth, for goodness. Um, They have rejected love. They hate has dominated their lives. Um, there are people whose, for whom everything has become a lie. People who lived for hatred and suppressed all love within themselves. There are people like that. And when you look at our history and indeed our recent history and the destruction and violence in the world, you can see there are people who have chosen hatred. People who have chosen to destroy love and truth, who have become a lie in themselves. And these people are now, uh, after death, beyond any remedy. There is no spark of goodness has survived in them. And by this we mean hell. This we mean hell. And hell is clear in sacred scripture. It exists. There is no doubt there is a hell. And Jesus spoke about it frequently in the gospel. Now, that is one kind of person who have, uh, who have chosen the negative, who have chosen to destroy goodness and love, and their destination is that place called hell. Now, the Pope goes on to say, but also in life there are utterly good people, people who are totally good. Really, insofar as you can say a human being is good, they are pure and good, filled with goodness, people of compassion, people of mercy, people who lived for other people, some wonderful people, parents and workers and 
committed people like some of you indeed, good, good people, fully open to God, fully open to other people, open to goodness, admiring and encouraging and responding all the time with generosity, you know. And for them then, death really is a fulfillment. Death is reaching home. Death is heaven. They go straight to heaven. And so, so you have hell and you have heaven. Now, but the Pope goes on to say, but the majority of people, you know, are not totally evil and are not totally good. They're sort of like the rest of us, mediocre in between. There's a foundation, a desire for goodness, a desire to be good, a desire to be right. That's there, a foundation in them. They were baptized into Christ. They are feel called to be good and truthful, uh, even if they're not baptized. Uh, these people, they want to reject hate, hatred, and they want to reject Satan. So, uh, now, uh, these people, uh, they have a foundation if you like, uh, to be open to goodness. They have sinned, yes. They have compromised with evil, yes. Uh, there is much badness in them, yes. There is much, as the Pope says, filth in them. What about them? In other words, it's clear that those who are totally bad are gone, that those who are totally good are with God. But what about the majority of us? who would like to be good, but have failed in so many things like the vast majority of us. What about us? Well, the Pope refers to the first Corinthians, St. Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 to 15. I'm looking at that now because this is where the Pope takes us to speak about what we now call purgatory, a state of people, you know, being purified for God. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12 and following there. Now, Paul begins by saying that Christian life is built upon a common foundation, and the foundation is Jesus Christ. You know, um, we call ourselves Christians. We are Christians. We have received the sacrament, especially baptism. You know, we've listened to the word of God. We have prayed. Okay, we have forgotten God. We have wandered away and so on. But if we have stood firm on this foundation and built our life upon it, we know that it cannot be taken away from us in death. So even though we have failed many times, somehow there's a foundation, a basic desire, a leaning towards God. Even though we failed, we have been sorry for how we have failed. We have hurt other people, we have hated perhaps, but we, have, we are now sorry about that. Because the foundation, which is Jesus, is still holding there. And now, so Paul writes, I'm quoting from St. Paul now. Paul writes 1 Corinthians 3. Now, if anyone builds on a foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw, each person's work will become manifest. So when we die and stand before God, 
our whole life work, our whole leaning in life, our whole quality of life uh, will, as it were, become totally transparent before God and the world. Uh, for uh, the judgment and the day of the Lord will disclose us, will disclose us in our total humanity or lack of it, because it will be revealed with fire, Paul says. So we will be tested by fire, and the fire will test uh, what sort of work each one has done. Now, if that work uh, which any person has built on the foundation uh, survives, it, uh, he will receive a reward. If any person's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So look, what's uh, the Pope is saying? For all us in between Christians and good people all over the world, you know, if there's a basic foundation in us that we have recognized goodness and desired it, and if we have lived it to the best of our ability, even though we have many failures, if that foundation is truly there, it can never be taken away. Ultimately, for us Christians, the foundation is salvation in Jesus. That's there. We would like it. We long for it. We searched out for it. That will be tested, but that will withstand the fire. But all those evil things that we have failed in, they will be burnt out, you know, when we stand before God in judgment. So this fire will destroy sin so as to open us to God and to set us at the marriage feast. Now, for some theologians today, the Pope says, this fire which will test us in death is Jesus himself. When we see with Jesus, when we look and gaze with Jesus at the evil within us, there is great pain because of this evil we have done, because of the opportunities we have lost. We had many opportunities to do wonderful and good things that would have changed the whole life of other people. We didn't do it. We turned our backs on it because of selfishness and other reasons. Or if, for example... Where we look with Jesus on what might have been, what my life might have been if I had been faithful, you know, to, to, to the gospel and to Jesus. Or when we see before Jesus at this moment of death how others have suffered so much because of us. You know, then we will see the pain we have caused by our coldness, by our refusal to forgive, by our uh, omission, by our failure to reach out. Um, for the love we have refused and insulted and scorned, but the gaze of Jesus, the touch of his heart, will heal us because we now uh, have this foundation of longing for him and we see before him where we have so failed and so much evil in us and the embarrassment, the, 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 the love of Jesus which is churning within us will destroy all that evil and we will be transformed as if through a fire. You know, there were two brothers one time, to give an illustration. The elder brother avoided the army and went hiding but the younger brother was caught by the police and forced to serve in the army because his elder brother was missing. And the younger brother in the war died. Now the elder brother heard his mother praise his younger brother. And so he hated and spoke evil of his younger brother who died because of him. 
Yet the younger brother died for him. Now, how embarrassed that elder brother will be at the judgment to learn the truth, to stand beside his mother, to stand beside his younger brother who died for him, and to have to see and let the others see how he has hated the memory of his younger brother because of jealousy, because evil in his own heart, because he caused, in a way, the death of his brother. You know, when we stand before these... and There's so many... Examples I'm sure you can draw from your own life, you know, where we will be thoroughly embarrassed when we stand before those people we have destroyed with our words, those people that we have hated, those people that have done us good and we never rewarded them or recognized them. So the pain of love before Jesus, before truth, before those we have destroyed becomes our salvation and our joy. You know, that pain, that embarrassment before Jesus, who is totally conscious of us, who is looking straight into our soul, who is showing us as transparent in all the good and bad that is within us. The pain like that, this is purgatory. And what is the duration? How long will it last, this transforming, uh, burning? Well, we cannot calculate. We're speaking of a life beyond this life, beyond time, beyond space. So it's not someplace, uh, a space as such. It is a state of life. Uh, uh, it is uh, it is the heart's time, and so in a sense, you know, uh, you know, working in the prison ministries, uh, we would like to be able to uh, uh, present uh, uh, offenders and uh, victims with restorative justice. You know, uh, already in the prisons, we're working with people who have committed great crimes, and their family are extremely embarrassed and angry with them. And sometimes and many times, families never come to visit their sons or daughters who are in prison. They feel totally embarrassed and let down by them. So there's a total division between the poor person in prison and the family outside, which has suffered so much because of the crimes committed by that person. And, you know, uh, when eventually, after a lot of preparation, a lot of talking, a lot of uh, helping people to reflect and to pray together, to bring the grace of God to them, uh, maybe the parents, the mother can come and see this son who has disgraced them after all they have done for him. And, you know, really, slowly, slowly, they began to to, to be to, to, in deep in their hearts to feel for each other and soon indeed often they will embrace it's a moment of great tenderness a moment of, of great depth you know when they are restored to each other again but there's a lot of suffering a lot of effort a lot of doubt a lot of struggle within ourselves to reach that moment of course the next step if you like is when the offender meets that person he had Meets, I mean, the victim. Now, first of all, we rest, you restore them to their own families, and now we're talking about restoring the offender and the victim. How how struggle how difficult that is in restorative judgment. You know, when a woman who has been badly beaten and so on uh, meets the one who has so cruel, 
who tortured her, beat her, maybe raped her even, you know, for that restoration to take place, it really is a tremendous struggle. And if it can take place where they can begin to, if not forgive each other, at least accept each other, understand each other's stories, you know, this in a sense is what restorative judgment is trying to do in all sorts of air, in all sorts of ways. And in a way, that is what purgatory is, uh, in a sense, being done in the presence of Jesus, like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, uh, walking together with the Lord and sharing each other our honesty. So let's listen now to our next uh, hymn, which will be Lise Izul. How lovely heaven is. <laughs> 